everyone, and welcome to the third podcast of the Wild Work Work Placement Podcast. My name is Kinga, and I'm one of the students doing my work placement with Wild Work this summer. On this episode, we will be discussing climate change, and more specifically, Rachel's project on carbon sequestration and climate change. On today's episode, we will be hearing from William O'Halloran, a wild worker. Hi, Kinga. And Rachel Hayden. Hi, Kinga. Thanks for hosting this one. So just to start us off, Rachel, could you tell us a little bit about climate change? What's caused it? What are the impacts of climate change? Yeah, of course. So climate change really is any changes in our weather and patterns over a long period of time. So this can be from a few months to a few years to centuries to like millions of years. And it's a very natural process. It's happened a lot in the past, like the ice ages and then warm periods in between. But what's currently happening is that climate is changing at a far more rapid rate than we've ever seen in the past. And a lot of this can be contributed to human actions. So burning fossil fuels, changing the land use, a lot of that produces greenhouse gases that stay in the atmosphere and warm the planet. So in the last few years, temperatures increasing. The effects are endless, really. So there are positives and negatives. It is a double-edged sword, but a lot of it is negative in the way that Basically, global warming will affect us all. And we've all experienced it in everyday life. So it's getting warmer, there's more heat waves, there's more wildfires. At the same time then, you're having more storms, more floods. It's affecting us, it's affecting animals. So animal distribution, their habitats are changing around them, plants as well. And the main thing is the rate of change. Animals and plants, a lot of them can't keep up with it. So then our biodiversity is threatened by climate change. And that's the main thing that my project is looking at is how climate change and biodiversity loss interact with each other, but also how we can use biodiversity to positively impact climate change. That's very interesting. And William, you're out and about very often in Ireland, seeing what's really happening in nature. Have you seen any signs of climate change? That's a very good question. I mean, I I couldn't really answer that by saying yes. If I see something, be like, oh, that could be to do with climate change. But as Rachel mentioned, climate change happens over a longer period of time it may just be a seasonal thing that's causing that change like i remember wasn't this summer now last summer i think could be the one before i'm getting confused but we had a drought you guys remember that yeah and there was uh there was two uh, very real things that stuck out to me in meadows that we were managing uh one was up at cork airport and we have a meadow grassland up there out in front of the term- terminal people should have a look it's very beautiful but we ordinarily cut it, say, July at the earliest or a little bit later. But when we went up there that summer around June, it was like the whole meadow had turned into hay, you know, like dried grass that you feed cows. The whole meadow had turned into hay standing up. It was complete. It was almost like as if it was burnt to a crisp, completely dry. And we had to cut it earlier. And I, don't, I can't remember what it was brought up as a concern or not at the time. But there was an area near there where people would smoke. And this isn't ordinarily something you would think of as a fire hazard, you know, a meadow in Ireland way off. It was in a safe place that it did catch fire. But I remember thinking to myself, if someone did throw a cigarette butt into that meadow, it would have just taken off. Like, And we, we, we don't want that happening as part of the way we manage them. But the same summer then, there's a dairy farmer that we know, and they live in an area of low-lying land. They farm a herd of about four, there's about... 400 cows so it's a substantial dairy farm and it hadn't rained for weeks and weeks the water was running out and all the dairy farmers were and other farmers too were having trouble like because of this and it ended up being that 
the farmer was lucky because it was so, such low-lying ground that they had a spring on their farm that had like water in it all the time. And instead of, they, they had two options. One was they could, they had already some fodder to feed the animals that was built up from the previous year, but they, they had this to feed them in the winter time when the animals couldn't be out on the grass any longer. So it was either a case of, will we use up our stores or will we try to do something to make the grass grow? Because the grass wasn't able to grow anymore because there was no rain at all for way too long of a time. So it was actually cheaper for them to make the grass grow than to use up their existing stores. And what they ended up doing was um, paying for this agricultural contractor with a pump on the back of a tractor to come to their farm and pump water out of the spring all over the farm with these big, huge uh, water jets. And that was the cheaper option for them. And I think the farmer said, and this went on for day, maybe a number of weeks, he had to, it was actually cheaper for them to do this than to use up their stores. And I remember them saying that the cost of that ran at 1,300 euros a day. Wow. Yeah. That's surprising. So, so there you go. Now, now, those two examples I gave, straight away you go, oh, that's climate change. You know, this is a drought like we've never seen before. And maybe it was to do with climate change. But then again, could just have been a dry period of weather. You know, it's like something like that may have happened 24 years ago or 78 years ago or whenever. Um, but they're the two that stick out to me as like if the climate change is causing these things, I think they're my examples. And certainly when you hear people talking about what climate change can bring, they're two very real life uh, scenarios, I think. And they're, they're Irish. Usually you hear about climate change and think, oh no, it's, uh, it's going to be terrible for some poor country near the equator where they'll get they'll get so hot geez you won't be able to live there anymore we don't think that it comes to our own doorstep and rachel from your research could you tell us what kind of indicators of climate change could we possibly see in ireland in the future if you think of climate change like a bell curve so it's very low and then it starts getting really big and it dips back down so when temperature increases, it shifts to the right, which is more extreme. So we have more extreme weather that will happen more frequently. But then we still do have your normal weather patterns. It's just that the intense ones are becoming more frequent and more intense. So then when you think about what indicators there are, like a major one is the possibility of biodiversity loss, especially in Ireland, because we do at the moment have a very temperate oceanic climate. So it's very average temperature. To be honest, it's really nice. We have mild winters, we have nice summers. But then if it keeps getting hotter, we're going to have more extreme winters and hotter summers that our plants, animals mightn't be adapted to. Just in a general sense, what we could see is biodiversity loss, growth of habitat, maybe some more species spreading. And then we also have the maybe the threat of invasive species coming in. Because again, if the climate starts getting hotter, species from warmer temperatures might be able to establish here so they might be able to grow and thrive and spread as well bringing that back in agriculture that means then that we might have more pests potentially but it's it's such a it's such a potential you know we don't really know exactly what's going to happen and I think that's maybe the scariest part of it. Yeah I think there's um based on what you said I think there's a lot of misconceptions about climate change out there for example there's a people talk about global warming and they imagine that oh, like, that wouldn't be so bad in Ireland, we'll just get really nice summers, wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. But, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not what would happen. Like you said, climate change would just, it wouldn't mean more sunshine necessarily, it would just mean more extreme weather. So, like you mentioned, William, drought periods and, you know, storms, flooding events, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of maybe misinterpretation out there. 
So what kind of things have you come across in your reading, Rachel? How is climate change portrayed? It's really interesting. I was just reading about climate change has really opened my eyes on how difficult it is to talk about climate change. There's a lot of information out there, a lot of information that can be misleading, a lot of information that might be a little bit too complicated. Especially for me, I had to learn a lot of different vocabulary just to even understand what I was reading. But one thing that struck me and I think is really interesting is that science communication, which is basically educating, raising awareness and telling people about science related topics, is such a well studied topic in itself now. There's so much research gone into it. And then with climate change, it's again, it's own thing that everyone is researching how we talk about climate. And it's been shown that by talking about climate in a way where you're giving the information. So you're saying this is what's happening. This is the potential. And this is how we can fix it. And we can work towards you know, a better future for ourselves and future generations. That hope that it brings to people does wonders. It's what makes people want to take action. But if you just go in with fear, we're facing this apocalyptic future and blah, blah, it, it just scares people and people feel hopeless and they don't know what to do and they don't want to, they don't think they can help. Whereas if you go in with hope and you say, you know what, if we take these actions, it will make a difference. More people are much more susceptible to, to want to help. And it's been really interesting reading about that because I think like in college, when you're learning about climate change, it is doom, 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 doom. But then to realize that like it's really how you talk about it is what makes it so important to people. And then again, as well, it's like people are experiencing the effects of climate change more so people can relate to it more. So you need to bring in that emotion and kind of um, empathetic viewpoint to it as well so that people can relate and people as Will said it's like not in my backyard and like you know climate change won't affect me but then if you say you know it, it can but this is how you can do it people are a lot more um open to to trying to help. I think in general people will be surprised how much climate change already affects everyone um, and of course this all ties in into the kind of work that world work does and I'm sure William will be able to tell us science education and communication as well with people that World Work works with, that can get quite tricky, I, I'd imagine. William, have you experienced any, like we said, any misconceptions about climate change and what people are doing to contribute to it and what they can do to help? What Rachel touched on there to say that it's all doom and gloom, the messaging around it, it is. I would agree with that, that largely it is. And then any bit of hope or positivity in relation to climate change communication and what we can do, it's still in the context of the doom and gloom. So it's like the world is going to end. So we all need to come together and do all this great stuff, you know, but it's still, it's still based on climate change being such a terrible thing. You know, all these poor animals are going to die. So let's get together, guys, and save them. You know, that's the positive angle. What I, what I find there's people, when they speak about climate change, I think there's a bit of a lack of uh, being, uh, I don't know, is realism the right word, or being realistic, or being more, speaking in a more balanced way about what's happening, and being open to speak about the stuff that actually might come along that could be beneficial. Or, you know, we never hear stuff like that. And often a lot of language uh, around it, it's got to do with something far, far away. Uh, so we were, we we're working with one uh, large organization and there's a lot of people work there. And there's messaging all over the place about, you know, Save the Planet team messaging, which is largely to do with climate change. And it's like there's pictures of frogs from the Amazon rainforest on the walls and about 
you know, if you switch off the light, that can make the difference to save this frog's life. And it's, I, I, mean, I think that's way too much of an indirect link with that light switch and that frog. And But the, the messaging is not around like, you know, we need biodiversity for climate change sake. We need it for lots of other reasons as well, of course. And that like, we've got frogs here in Ireland. There's nothing about the frogs in Ireland in the messaging. That's where I think is the, the big gap is where there's not, the communication isn't really happening around the Irish situation and what's going on in Ireland. And as I said, what what will mean in a good way or a bad way? But one and on the good side of it, I mean, look, I mightn't be completely correct what I'm saying here because I I took this from an academic was I think it was a lecturer or something when I was in college myself. He was speaking about um how this is great for uh for bird species that that are grazers like ducks and swans so on because you'll get a lot more grasses that grow with the warmer conditions in the water. So he was saying like that if you're a duck or a swan, that now it might be just in, in, in an interim period, it might be over the longer term, who knows, but that climate change is bringing great benefit to you because you're going to have way more food to eat. Like, And I thought that was so interesting. And what I find for me personally, that hearing the full side of the story, hearing everything, I guess it puts me at ease. You know, I think I'm lucky enough in my own life that I have been exposed to different sides of the story I'm not that fearful about it then you know and I know about the horrific side of the story about like you know what's the best solution to climate change oh go and live on top of a hill and get yourself a gun there is a real extreme side of this story (laughs) here so I'm aware of all of them but like the people I've been lucky enough to encounter that have told me about the more balanced view in it it's made me kind of go all right yeah I understand it now actually that's quite interesting geez that could be bad but that could be good and you start to hear all these stories of things adapting and this is what i'm coming to hear that really the this conversation has now moved into the space and so it should i think about climate change adaption you know so so all along for for as long as i can remember the talk is around climate change itself and the impact of climate change itself but when we start talking about adapting to climate change and there are like uh, in cork now uh, both the county and city councils have climate change adaption strategies now and they're coming in all over Ireland. There's a national one. When you start talking about adaption, you're already talking about the stuff that's really going to happen, whether it's good or it's bad, and what we have to do to, to adapt to it. And when you talk to people about adapting, they start accepting anyway. And they, I think they start to feel more empowered and more hopeful. Key word, Rachel, you mentioned. So no, there's a lot of things I said there, but that's the summary of some of the stuff I've been seeing, certainly. I'm looking into how we can manage our gardens to take CO2 out of the atmosphere and trap it in soil and vegetation, because that is one way of mitigating climate change. And a lot of what I'm seeing is basically, yeah, we're adapting our gardens to climate change. So I think that that ties in really well with what you were saying, William, that people need to be made aware of the good and the bad, and then they need to adapt to it. I think, um, I don't know about you guys, but very often there's a lot of kind of scary statistics out there about climate change and all sorts of things. And if you actually pay attention to it very often, it might say things like fast fashion, for example, this amount of kilograms of discarded clothes are found every day in landfills. Very often it doesn't, it doesn't tell you on what scale it is or what the time frame is. And those statistics, they really, really scare you and they make you, like you said, William, they almost make you want to just give up and be like, oh, what's the point anyway? And if you pay attention and you're like, this doesn't really sound legitimate. On the one hand, it can kind of make you be like, oh, I don't believe it. So like, this isn't, this is probably false. I, I won't, 
I won't listen to this at all. Or get you to the other extreme where you're like, oh my God, the world is ending. And I think those uninformed uh, articles out there and, you know, brochures or whatever, they can, they can have a lot of bad effects because they can affect people's mental health and they can turn people off. And I think like what you said, Rachel, before, it's, it's quite important to, to talk about the, the good things. And very often, I think maybe you will agree with this, Rachel, when you're, when you're studying this, it gets very depressing just yeah. sitting sitting every day listening about how like the temperature is rising the sea levels are rising the animals are dying and you know you're like okay but is there anything good that's happening is there anything that i can actually do to fix this or is this just doom and gloom and nothing can be done about it and for me anyway i think definitely having my workplace mobile wild work is a great experience because wild work does so much good with communities and education and just encouraging people to start making a difference right now and you know it when you when you break it up you don't have to go and close factories or go to strikes you can you can start small like you said you can you can plant trees in your garden you can you know get a compost in your back garden you can have a bee house and i think that work is very important yeah i definitely definitely came into wild work for the same reasons as you did kinga because i already knew about wild work and everything you do with the community and the outreach but then looking up your ethos, it's very much, you know, be positive, look at the positives of what we can do that we as a community and individuals can take. And I think do my project as well has made me more aware of like the small things that we can do that can make a big difference. So I completely agree with you, Kinga, that like just coming into this working environment and seeing all these people so passionate and knowing that like so many people want to be involved and want to make a change and that change doesn't need to be drastic. As you said, like, you know, it doesn't need to be, you can't drive anymore because that produces greenhouse gases. It's just, you know, make small little changes that can help. You definitely see more and more of it um, in media at the moment, you know, like you said, as opposed to telling people, oh, you, you know, you can't, you can't drive your car, you can't eat certain things because of the carbon footprint. It's, you know, telling people, how about you, you know, you start taking the bus on the weekdays. How about you start cycling? How about you, you know, start Meatless Monday, you know? Yeah, I think it's great because I... I don't know about you, but I definitely, growing up, I I was always very passionate about this. And it seemed that when I was, you know, in my early teens, nobody else cared about it. At least my peers, you know, they were busy doing other things. And it, at that stage, I just got kind of sad. I was like, nobody cares about this. Nobody's doing anything about it. And I think now, even, you know, you don't even have to like study it like I do. I think there's so much out there that's like really positive. A lot of products, a lot of information, a lot of things like TV shows, documentaries, etc. And we were discussing Teddy Towns on a different podcast and we were kind of talking about all the good that they do. And I, th- I, I was thinking about that last night, actually, and I was thinking, what's great about Tidy Towns is that people who mightn't be very educated on the subject and they mightn't know how they can help, having places like that where they can ask them, how can I help? Um, and it's very tangible work. I think that does a lot of good for, for the planet and for the people themselves. Look, we have two distinctly different crises, the biodiversity crisis and the climate change crisis. Mm-hmm. And both of them are the same as each other in that um, they're both global crisis and also a national crisis. I think with climate change, 
the conversation or the way people think about it, they think about it more as a global thing. That's how we relate to it. And I think that then causes some people to not connect with that story because it's not as relevant to them because it's not in your own backyards. The biodiversity crisis, it's global as well. And I know like people get it that like we have to have orangutans and polar bears and the frogs in the rainforest. I think it's a bit easier for people to relate to the biodiversity crisis in a local sense in your own backyard. You know, it's easier to understand about badgers and foxes and crows and blackbirds and whatever um, than it is for climate change and all that, even though we speak about weather loads in Ireland, understanding climate's a bit trickier. But the thing is, I think the two crises then, of course, are interlinked very much. One impacts upon the other. And so they are distinctly different. They're also both the same. And what I mean by that is that if climate changes, it has an impact on biodiversity. Or if climate changes and we're going to have increased flooding, we could use biodiversity to be able to adapt to that by maybe creating wetland barriers at the coast. Or So there's constant mingling of the two storylines. But largely, up until now, the biodiversity one has been ignored, I would say. And climate change spoken about more. But what's happening now, with about the last two years or so, is I feel that biodiversity has been spoken about more and more and more. Maybe in the context of climate change, maybe on its own right. And I think that's a good thing, because for me, the biodiversity as a topic is a wonderful way to engage people in their environment and our nature as a topic, if you want to use that word instead of biodiversity. It's a great way to engage people in the environment that they live in. And when people are engaged in that environment, then it's far easier to speak to them about things like climate change because they it resonates with them, they care about their environment, so on. And so I can see good things happening in that space of engaging people, using biodiversity to reach people, to engage people, to bring people together, to start up the conversation. And then for anyone who cares about the environment, the very idea of doing something to help the planet, to help tackle climate change crisis, it makes absolute sense. I think, I think what you said earlier, Kinga, with your peers around you, except they don't care, probably just didn't care. But why would they if they, you know, if it wasn't of relevance to them? So we can use biodiversity really to inspire people about nature and the environment, help them to fall further in love with it. And if you love something, you care about it. And then they can, from there, you're in a way better position in order to communicate with them about climate change and to convince them to take action. That's very nicely put. Going back to your project, Rachel, could you tell us a little bit more about it? I think that topic is very interesting and something that most of us haven't really heard much about. So your project is about carbon sequestration. So could you tell us a bit a bit more about that, what it is and what it means for climate change? So carbon sequestration is kind of synonymous now with trying to reduce the effects of climate change. Carbon sequestration is a natural process, but we can also help enhance it. It takes CO2 out of the atmosphere and it traps it in soil, vegetation and the ocean. And what's really interesting is that soil is really good. I think it has three times the amount of carbon stored in soil than there actually is in the atmosphere. So if you think about that, that's a lot. And then if you think about Ireland, over 60% of Ireland's land cover is grassland. So that's a large, large potential for us to be a massive carbon sink. But I'm not really focusing on the agricultural side because we know there's a lot of agriculture in Ireland. A lot of land, grassland is used for agriculture. What I'm more interested in, how we manage our gardens, how often we cut it, do we use fertilizers, do we use pesticides, how much we water it. I'm looking at all of that and taking into account on how that affects the grass and soil for taking carbon. And one of the fascinating things for me, I was trying to look up the percentage of how much of Ireland 
is made up of urban green spaces. So that's like gardens, parks, botanical gardens, football pitches, golf courses. And I just, I couldn't find a number. Like I was on the central statistics office. I was looking at and I just couldn't find a number. And you can find it for other places like England. They, they have a percentage. They know how much gardens take up their land and I couldn't find it for Ireland and it was so frustrating and then I eventually found the what's called a current land cover so basically it breaks down what Ireland land is used for and less than one percent of Ireland is used for urban green spaces and sports and leisure facilities which I thought I, it just blew my mind and that's a very small percentage but that is a percentage that we are using all the time walk around my town and city I go out to the park all the time so I think we can do a lot to help maybe you know obviously the effect of agriculture and trying to use carbon sequestration there is going to have a larger impact but I can't do any of that so what I really like about my project is that it's looking at what we can do as individuals to try to help looking at gardens again there's really not that much research done into gardens in Ireland in particular and I think that might be because this is my own opinion that agriculture sucked in it's a major contributor to greenhouse gases that we're putting all our energy into that, which I think makes sense in a way. So a lot of the research I'm finding about how we should manage our grasslands, basically, is from America. And that in itself is a little bit tricky because obviously they have a different climate and they have different definitions. But from what I could see overall is that our grassland has a potential to capture a lot of carbon. So to break it down, it's about three tonnes of CO2 equivalent, which means how much CO2 would need to have the effect per hectare every year. And that doesn't sound like much, but it can be. So if you fly from London to Hong Kong and back, a patch of grass could take all that carbon back in. So it's like it's your actions and then how you mitigate it can really have a, a positive impact. Yeah, my project really has just been looking at that and overall my kind of consensus on it from what I've read is that some grassland systems, which are managed maybe to be a bit more like amenity grassland, which is short grass, considered less biodiverse, and it's used for it's used for leisure and activity. It's like people, you know, they sit on the grass in the summer, you know, you're playing football, like that type of grassland. A lot of research is pointing towards using fertilizer to actually increase carbon sequestration. But I think a lot of time that's missing a big point that it says that using fertilizer makes grass grow more. And if you cut the grass and you leave the clippings on the grass, it makes the grass and soil take in more carbon. But then it's not taken into account how much greenhouse gas and carbon footprint producing and using fertilizer is. You're mowing more frequently. That is also then producing more greenhouse gases. So in the end, that type of system, what you really have is almost a null effect because you might be capturing as much carbon as you are producing by managing it that way. So then looking at it from more of a ecological or environmentally kind of friendly focused way, you can actually reduce a lot of the fertilizer use by using grass clippings. So when you cut the grass, just leave the grass out on the lawn and it'll break down. And not only that, it improves the soil, improves life for all, you know, like worms and bugs in the soil which then help aeration they help the soil be more healthy for example like having clover in your field or in your lawn is really good because it um, fixes nitrogen which is much better than for storing carbon if you have more diversity in your garden it is better for storing carbon you know plant more trees plant more shrubs don't have as much like 
bare ground have living vegetation or mulch, which helps reduce um, evaporation, which again, it's all complicated and makes carbon um, loss go up. That can make a big difference. So by being more aware of the environmental, environmental consequences of your actions can really help carbon sequestration in grassland. I know it's a lot to take in. It was a lot for me to take in as well at the start. No, thanks, Rachel. And well, what are your thoughts on that? I think in terms of carbon sequestration there, Rachel, it sounds to me the biggest thing you're learning is that there, there's massive gaps in the research there, that it's almost impossible to say anything in particular. The example you gave about the using the fertilizer was a good one. So somewhere people are advocating, oh, use fertilizer because it'll get the grass to grow more. But that's a bit like grass is good for absorbing carbon. So if you can get the grass to grow more, you'll absorb more carbon. And in a sense, it's correct, but they're not looking at the full cycle of what you're doing there and how the fertilizer is produced. So like chances are that sort of approach could actually be counterproductive. And then the clippings, you said about um, dropping clippings onto the soil. That again is an interesting one. I mean, in, in the management of pollinator-friendly grassland systems, that's one of the things that is that we're trying to change. We're asking people not to drop clippings on the grass. Because if you do that, if you manage your, say, your lawn in that kind of a way, it creates conditions that are ideal for grass only, not for wildflowers. So managing a lawn in that way, you'll end up with less biodiversity. Yep. And this is, again, going back on the biodiversity crisis, the climate change crisis. You can see all the merging of lines here. But I, I wonder if that's correct, that dropping clippings on soil is a little bit better from the carbon sequestration point of view. Would it be the same thing if those clippings were still removed from the soil, but just put to a composting area? It's one thing I'm wondering. So I would say 90% of papers that I've read or like I'd say official websites that I've gone on say leave your clippings on the grass. But that's a very good point if you compost it and then put it out. It's not something that I've come across Terry there, and like I would really question this one now for a few reasons. Like that, that you when you cut the grass, essentially the grass that's been cut is dropped on the ground, and that when that breaks down, you're saying it will, it eventually will be pulled down by worms into the soil, and another other life will pull it down as well. But that that becomes stored as carbon. Okay, but that reminds me of woodlands. So that if you have storm event or someone cuts down trees, just like you cut grass, or they get blown over by the wind they fall on the forest floor, that dead wood essentially, or it's alive and it's dying. And as the process happens, it's been absorbed into the soil. So therefore the carbon has been absorbed into the soil, but it is also releasing carbon into the atmosphere while that's happening. So I'm guessing here that the same is going to be happening with the grass, that it not only will it be bringing carbon to the soil, but it will be releasing it as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So one time I read it or someone said it to me, I can't quite remember, but they made the point that to burn wood in the fire is the same as to have it decaying on the forest floor. And what I think they meant is that when you burn the wood, you're releasing emissions. But if you had never harvested the wood and if it was just left to die on the forest floor, those same emissions would have been emitted anyway. But they liken burning wood in the fire the same to letting it decay in the forest floor. And I think perhaps the difference there with that would be um, that when you're burning the firewood, you're releasing those emissions a lot quicker. And, um, you know, I think it's worth saying, too, now this time we're speaking a lot about living vegetation and often people don't realize that non-renewable resources like coal, oil, even turf that we speak about as being bad, you know, in terms of climate change, that we want to leave these in the ground. 
But when you trace back the origins of those materials, they actually at one time were living organisms, whether they were animal life or plant life. And essentially as they died, they decayed on the forest floor or in the floor of the ocean or wherever else. So without going further into that, that's essentially where coal, oil, turf, where all these materials came from. And when we burn those nowadays, when you light up a fire with coal or whatever else, you're, that's carbon that was built up over decades, over thousands of years, over millions of years, and you're burning it all in one go and releasing it now and then into the atmosphere. Anyway, to bring it back to what we were saying about the woodlands and grasslands. It's a real interesting space when you start thinking about it, because to me, whether it's wood or whether it's grass or whatever the living plant matter is, it is absorbing carbon when it's growing, both into itself and into the soil while it's growing. So therefore, anything that's growing is storing carbon while it's growing, which is great. So trees do that. They store the carbon in themselves, but also in the soil. That, but then when you cut the trees, same as when you cut the grass, it emits carbon. And that's where there is an issue in particular with deforestation, because when you cut a whole woodland, carbon that has been absorbed over tens of years all gets emitted in one big event. But the exact same principle is in play with our lawns. And we're, I'm right now saying this, yeah? You're comparing the two to each other. So I think the carbon one is interesting. I don't know if something is allowed to grow and it's never cut at all. That's probably the best way to absorb carbon. So if you never ever cut the grass and leave it grow on for the year and just let it all die back and all die down, that's the best way to get the carbon into the soil. But then, of course, you end up with a different habitat. And if you never, ever, ever, ever manage that grassland, be it through grazing or cutting, it'll revert to a different habitat and become woodland, mm. inevitably. And so these are all the things we think of. But what's standing out to me as a definite, though, Rachel, is that the less machinery, the less energy we use in managing the lawn, from what you were saying, that is definitely creating less emissions it mightn't be making much who knows the difference but the carbon sequestration but certainly for emissions the less energy you use in managing your green system lawn or golf course or whatever the better it is from the climate change point of view because there's less emission yeah we've talked about the the whole idea of having your grassland just grow for the year versus cutting it more frequently and again it's just something that i can't seem to find an answer on most recommendations say you know cut it frequently because then you have more grass clippings more grass is growing but what you're saying will is if we leave that grass grow like it'll be the same height as if you left the grass that you cut more often grow and i just can't find an answer for it unfortunately i have stumbled across one website but again my kind of student thinking it wasn't like an official website it was just someone talking about their garden and they said if you cut your meadow once a year that is still sequestering the same amount as if you cut it multiple times. As you said, you're reducing the machinery you're using, you're reducing the energy that you're emitting. And in a way then, how wild work you manage meadows sometimes is that like you use what I call old school tools, you know, the site to cut meadows. Again, that's not emitting any greenhouse gases, better when it was produced, but let's not even go into that, compared to using a lawnmower, which uses fossil fuels, you burn them, that's emitting a gas. So if you did only cut it once a year, you were saving on so much emissions. I mean, the more and more you look into it, the more and more interesting and like complicated it gets. You fall down a rabbit but, hole. Yeah. What I was going to say here, it's important though, is that and this is one of the things that Wildwork is really trying to do, whatever we're working on with people, is we're trying to get people to understand and to think about stuff before they do it. You know, 
maybe you can never fully understand everything, but that's the aim. So if you want to help nature in your back garden or on your farm or, or in your community, wherever, there's no point going away off and doing something because you heard, you know, it was good to plant trees or it was good to do this, or we'll do that too here now. That's one of the things that brought about wild work that led to us developing this initiative was that we saw people were taking action to help nature tackle climate change. And they were, they were, they were celebrating the stuff they were doing and other people were comp- copying what they were doing. And a lot of the time they were doing stuff that actually wasn't good for nature or that wasn't good for climate you could have people tackling an invasive species like japanese knotweed and going out chemical warfare using different chemical products and trying to kill the plant because it's you, you have to kill it like this thing is so bad and then they might have been doing that in aquatic environments places where they're releasing chemicals into aquatic systems their watershed they shouldn't be doing so then because they were doing it without being trained up or whatever they weren't even having an impact on tackling the plant the knotweed was still growing at the end of it all you have all these examples or we you know people places where um there was woodland and there was like uh, there was one high enough profile example i don't have to say where it is but there was this woodland an old woodland an old growth woodland it's the woodland was over 100 years old and there are sycamore trees growing in it. And sycamore trees grow all over the country in Ireland. And they are kind of classed as invasive, but they're not really. They're a well-integrated part of our natural ecosystem in Ireland. And then some trees were dying a little bit. Now, any healthy woodland yeah, needs to have dead and dying trees in it. And any ecologist would understand that. But there was a story came out how there's sycamore, they're bad, and there's this dead, decaying trees. And so next thing, the whole woodland was clear felt, just obliterated. And you're talking like about four acres of woodland obliterated and um, and then in its place were planted loads of native trees. So the, the media hype around this story was what a wonderful story people had done and how great it was. And native trees planted and we went in there afterwards and looked and there was about six or seven tree species and about two or three of them were native and the other were not. It's I'm just giving examples here of how people act on information without understanding and but what you're doing, Rachel, is you're delving into this and trying to understand it. And that's what's so important. And it's what we need. And when you do that, you start learning about other stuff. So you might you might start looking at carbon sequestration, you know, something quite technical, and then start discovering that, geez, if grassland is managed in this way with clover, that that's good for bees. And like, oh, wow, that's a way I could manage my lawn for pollinators. So it's all about stopping, thinking, understand, trying to understand, and then acting, you know, or not acting in some cases. I completely agree, William. I think taking the time to understand the problem and then thinking about the solution for that problem before jumping into anything is really important, especially for biodiversity. So, Rachel, you said that only 1% of Vancouver and Ireland is currently used. So it's actually, if you break it down, it's 0.05% is used for urban green spaces, which are parks, gardens, um, which is public and private parks and gardens, botanical gardens, anything really that you would classify maybe as nature within an urban setting. And then there's sports facilities and leisure facilities is 0.31% of Ireland's land cover. As of the current cover for 2012, it might have increased a little bit since then, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was significantly increased if it has. And Rachel, would that include roadsides? I don't know, unfortunately. So last week now I've been looking into it a lot and the current habitat is very good in that it breaks down land cover by land use, but it doesn't break it down really. I did actually, I emailed the Central Statistics Office and I asked them if they had any statistics on the land use. And 
unfortunately you know, they were fantastic they were so good getting back to me they sent me loads of links and everything they were fantastic but they said the research just isn't there for it at the moment there is not a national wide research done on the breakdown of you know how much urban green spaces gardens how much is you know roadsides it's it's just not there or if it is if someone's listening by all means contact Wildwork. we'd love to know but so far I've not I haven't been able to actually break that down so I think it'd be fascinating to know how much garden like percentage of urban spaces and gar- is gardens because in England their urban green space about 35% of it I think is just gardens alone like they have a massive green space in their um, urban environment so I'd love to know for us in Ireland what is our breakdown of it. Mm. It strikes me as being very low if I thought about it I would have imagined it could be you know between five and ten but it, it, whatever it is, though, for, for the purpose of what we're trying to do in these spaces, for, for trying to tackle climate change, the, the quantity of this land is less important, I think, than where this land is. Because, so absolutely, everyone, in, look, if it's as little as 1% or 2% and you manage that area in a certain way to sequester carbon, you are going to have less of an impact than if it's, you do something similar in 60% of our agricultural land, you know? There's no question there. But these places we're talking about, Rachel, this is where the majority of our population lives. Yeah. So if you manage a grassland downtown Douglas or wherever it might be, and there's thousands of people seeing that every year and you're communicating with them the way you're managing this and why, and you're helping them to understand about carbon sequestration or about managing grasslands for climate change purposes, you're going to have a huge impact on, on raising awareness. And then also... Those people are influential in terms of being the clients of our agricultural system. So they're the consumer, essentially. So you're able to impact the consumer attitude by managing things in a certain way there. And so that means then if there are farmers, and there are a lot of farmers that are wanting to move in this way now to to produce food products, be that milk or beef or whatever it is, that's more that their grasslands are managed with more carbon-friendly methods. And you're educating the consumer about those methods. The consumer isn't necessarily able to go into the farmer's field to learn about it. So I think you can have a big impact that way, that you're raising awareness. And then if consumer attitudes change, they're going to want to buy a certain type of product that's more carbon-friendly. And I think you can have a big impact that way, certainly. And um, it, there's, there is also, though, when you hear a landmass of like one, if it's as little as 1%, I don't know if people can imagine, that sounds low, but 1% of the Irish landmass, that's an awful lot of land. What is that? Would you have an idea what that is actually, say, generally people go by acres uh, here in Ireland. Would you know how many acres or how many hectares 1% is of the country? I know you can see it in the document. It does break it down by um, hectares, but I just, I like a good percentage myself. So I actually don't have it in front of me, but I know you, you can, you can look it up. I might try to find it in the meantime. But that's a good point. The land cover might sound small as a percentage, but it's important to remember that urban areas are just going to continue growing as well. So looking into the future, Ireland has actually had a massive urban growth in the last two decades. And we are continuing to get larger cities, larger urban areas. So it'd be definitely worth keeping in mind that 1% of green spaces when we're building new cities and new areas. Because as you said, people are going to be in that and it's the people that make the changes yeah that's that's interesting and i wonder as well when it's urban green spaces is that just within certain size towns and cities 
it's um it's classified as within an urban area so like football pitches are included in that but it's football pitches that are within city bounds or urban boundaries uh, and under okay. 25 hectares okay so like you can already see there that so the figure is potentially as low as around one percent but it could mm. be as high as five yeah. I, I mean it's but it's in and around. We're certainly talking about like, we're talking about here, all of Ireland, that's basically some form of grassland that's not under an agricultural system. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult enough to quantify what that is, but could be as high as, you know, it could be way off, but it's certainly not, wouldn't be higher than 10% and it could be as low as one. But give or take, like if we can do something with 1%, 5%, 6%, yeah. whatever percentages of our land, that's a way to have a big impact. And the thing that I like about working in this space also is you can set an example for others to follow. So if we're able to, we're able to manage 1% of the landmass of Europe in a way that's better for carbon sequestration, that's a substantial piece of land and that's a lot of absorbing carbon. So it's 3,573 hectares for green urban areas in 2012. And then for sport and leisure facilities, it's 22,263 hectares for 2012. Um, and they do have, I would just like to say, they do have an updated 2018 version, but it's a map, so you need to have GIS installed to be able to look at it. And I tried to download QGIS, which is a free version um, online, and my laptop just wasn't having it. So that's a very important point you made about what's this, what's that percentage going to end up 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line? We've been talking a lot about emissions and their effect on climate change. So can you guys tell me a little bit about why is it so important to sequester carbon? And if we don't, what impacts could that have on climate change? I think in the context of Ireland and our greenhouse emissions is pretty important. In 2018, we produced nearly 61 million tonnes of greenhouse gases, which I know it's kind of almost an abstract figure, but it is quite significant. And if you break it down per person, the average is 13.3 tonnes per person. Now, that's not to say that I'm going out making 13.3 tonnes or you are or anyone. It's just like the average. We are the, I think we're the third highest in Europe. Just to give you an idea, it, it is a lot. I think um, the average for the UK is 15. So that that is a lot. And sometimes that's more than some countries can make. So for us, I think it's really important that we try to do our own part and reduce it. And Ireland is actively trying to reduce emissions. So we've signed up for a lot of different um, climate change agreements like the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement, EU sharing agreements, which are trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So we had a target of 20% by 2020. I don't think we've reached that, but now coming into the new year of 2020, we have a new target of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 30% by 2030. So although we know we failed, we know where we failed and we're trying to do more. And last year, Ireland was the second country in the world to declare a climate emergency, which also brings in biodiversity. So it's a climate change and biodiversity emergency. What I think is really important that Ireland is acknowledging it and we are trying because it's so important that we know what we're producing, how much we're producing it and how we can offset it. It's important to take early action. And that's what a lot of literature says. I don't know if we're classifying this as early action. I don't know. 
Will, you might have an opinion on that. But they are classifying this early action intervention to try to reduce it. Because if we don't, in simple terms, our weather is just going to get more unpredictable. It is going to get hotter. That might actually benefit Ireland's agriculture because with hotter temperatures, we'll be able to grow more cereals and more fruit. So that's good for us. But there are other parts of the world where hotter temperatures might negatively affect agriculture. It'll be too hot. They will need more inputs like water, fertilizer. And then at some point, even just with plants, they reach uh, a saturation with CO2. So it's not like higher temperatures will always mean more production and more crops being produced because they can only they can only do so much, to be honest. So you have to take that into account as well. The future for Ireland, if we don't take action, isn't great. But at the same time, we're always taking action. Everyone's trying to reduce climate change effects because it affects us, but also affects the rest of the world. And of course, well, what William said before, the thing about climate change is you never really know until it's happening. So early action is, is important. Yeah, I like to say it, that climate change is happening. It's just we don't know the consequences yet. It could take years to know. I think that actually is the way with a lot of things when it comes to, to nature. You don't really know the effects until a long time afterwards. Now, we're getting better at modeling and we can predict changes for sure. But mm-hmm. a lot of those predictions, you can't predict the future until you can predict the past so once you can model what happened in the past you know you can model what happens in the future factors that impact it as well that you have no predicting at the moment of course exactly but i think we're going in the right direction and just to touch on what you William said before that'd be quite interesting to know as well as you said that it's important because of course you you all Rachel you said that you grow grasses for example and then you cut them and you said that that's quite important for habitats or ecosystems and i'm quite interested to hear why So when it comes to the management of grassland, as Will said, you can leave it, but then it's going to change into a different habitat. So that's one factor that you need to think of is how you manage it, because grassland is a very important habitat. It's important for pollinators, birds, like different flowers, like orchids. Some orchids you will only find in meadows. So if you're going in and you're frequently cutting the grass, then you're changing it from, let's say we're talking about a very biodiverse meadow. If you're frequently cutting it, you're making that into more of an amenity grass sand where it doesn't have different structures in it to provide forage and shelter for animals so that's changing it and then on the flip side if you're doing nothing you're allowing the habitat to change and then if more shrub takes over and trees grow that again pushing out any animals that live in that habitat so you have to manage a habitat and I'm talking about any habitat now like you kind of need to manage it to maintain it so some people might think oh you know we're better off just leaving the the grassland and the meadows do their own thing but if we do that then we're not conserving any of the nature that's within that habitat well what we'll say there is you're what i call half right (laughs) fair enough (laughs) and it depends on what way you look at it but you are correct like that if you that's if that's what you want to do if you want to maintain it but essentially whatever you do or don't do to a habitat is going to have an impact on what lives there that's very simple that's real oversimplification but a lot of the times within conservation the work is based around um, trying to conserve and keep things the way they are. So if you come across a really rare type of grassland habitat, that will be 
there as a result of how it had been managed over time. So in the, that instance, you'll want to ma- keep managing it that exact same way so it will stay like that because of the grassland is so rare. There's hardly any of it left anywhere in the world. Or in the, but then at the same time, if you want to increase biodiversity in a general sense anywhere, whether it's in the woodland or in a, in a green in a grassland or wherever, the general rule of thumb is that the more diversity there is in terms of how you manage it, the more different it is, the more different things that will live in there. So if you had a football field and you decided, right, we're not going to play football anymore, we're going to manage it for wildlife. If you ended up, if you just let the whole thing grow along, you'll get more diversity in it. There's more structure, as you referred to earlier, as in the grass will be able to grow higher and then more different types of things can live in the different layers within that height structure. But So that will increase its biodiversity there. But then if you actually decided that one half of it we're going to leave grow along for the whole year, no, one quarter of it we'll leave grow along for the whole year. The other quarter of it we're just going to never do anything with it whatsoever, leave it go completely wild. Another quarter of it we're going to cut it four times a year and another quarter of it we're going to keep it like cut frequently you know then you've got four different types of systems of grass there in your football field and all of them will will be of benefit to different types of life therefore you'll get more that's what we're looking at here and see the thing is in how we manage our landscape whether it's in agriculture in gardens in cityscapes wherever it is we've generally been moving towards this trend of being very straight lined clean cut shaven uh, sophisticated plain and well manicured so you have very little diversity in that type of management system where Rachel you said earlier a lot of what we do is trying to bring back the old ways people used to manage things so in older farming systems there was more diversity in the types of crops that farms would have produced you know there'd be a whole range of things it's like now you go to Tesco for everything that's produced from all over the world but long ago the local farm produced all the things that the community needed and we didn't have a Tesco or a super value or wherever else. Um, so like general principles, so people understand that when we are managing places for wildlife, trying to increase biodiversity, that's what we're kind of doing. We're, we're being conscious of what's there. Is there something that we need to conserve? Like you mentioned, Rachel, but then if we, if it's like a blank canvas or somewhere where it's appropriate to work with it, to leave it go wild or introduce imagine practices, doing these sort of things allow it to become more and more diverse. I think when I was talking about right I wasn't even thinking of like the blank canvas of if this area if it was abandoned what you could do with it because when I was in college we did a lot of field trips out to different locations and that was one thing that kept coming up again is how should we manage our land because obviously my course is about managing the land it's the thing that comes up time and time again for me, right, think of that story as a metaphor for what's happening with regards to climate change in our planet. Because how I interpret the big, big picture of what's going on here is I think that climate change, largely speaking, is a symptom of biodiversity loss. So in our planet, we have all these ecosystems that have built up over hundreds and thousands of years. And they are all a carbon sink, correct? But they're also a sink for biodiversity, if you want to describe that. They're full of life. And all the things that are important for humans and other species to depend on. Yeah. So like without nature, we have no life really. I mean, it is life. But what we've done in recent times, certainly very recent times in terms of the history of life on the planet, is there's been a a, a mass destruction of nature in our planet. So we have been, we haven't just been harvesting the resources that the earth provides us with, but we've been absolutely over harvesting it and completely degrading it. So like if, if, if you've, 
if you scale that down to say a, a, a single human level, if I'm a person that manages a woodland so I can have firewood, I come in every year and I cut down bits of the trees to be able to harvest firewood and my management actually has a positive impact in creating more diverse structure in that woodland and it'll have more life in it. And I burn my fire and of course that's emitting stuff and you know, because carbon and all this is no natural stuff. But what we're doing with climate change and the planet as a whole, it's akin to me in that woodland coming along one year and cutting down the whole thing and then having a big, huge bonfire, having a fire that's like 20 times bigger, keep myself warm than I actually need. And we've done that with in terms of carbon in the planet. So all this natural ecosystem that's built up that has carbon in it that's the breeding lungs of our planet we have just massacred it all we're cutting it all down and the the result of that is that all of the carbon that's held within it instead of it being gradually released here and there little bits and bit absorb release absorb release whatever the whole lot is just being released on mass and it's like your if you think of your body if you do something destructive or you know very extreme to it like drinking alcohol mightn't be too bad for you every now and again but if you just go on a binge for a whole month non-stop drinking you could kill yourself and and like well different you mightn't either like different people react will react to that in different ways but that's what we're doing to our planet we're doing something really extreme in at the the rate at which we are abstract abstracting its resources and all this stuff is being burned yeah so it's all being burned to create energy to produce all these things. So to me, it makes absolute sense just on a very simple kind of philosophical level that we're just we're burning the whole thing up. <laughs> and of course, it's going to get hotter and not have an impact. So, I mean, there are other things that cause climate change as well. But for me, that's the big one. How I see it is that it's like climate change is, is a symptom of what we're doing with biodiversity in this planet. That's a really a great way to explain it as well. What can we all do? Small things that we can do to help. Yeah, well, like from my research and my point of view, what I've been doing is is related to your garden. So obviously it depends on the type of garden you have and what you want it to be. If it's more of a lawn, then, you know, maybe just look at, if you're using fertilizer, pesticides, maybe just look at how how you use them, really read up about it, learn how to efficiently use them, maybe try to reduce and use alternatives. Like there's a lot of different alternatives to fertilizers. Like I read one recently and it was using nettles. So steep nettles and water and you can use that. There's a lot of different alternatives. So maybe try to look into them as well. But rainwater, collect that and use that instead of using your hose. Because not only is that good for us if we go through a drought, but also you're just reusing it's like a cycle in the garden if you have a garden that is maybe more biodiverse you have more flowers more plants then again just maybe keep doing what you're doing like go down the environmental route plant a lot of different type of plants like as I said a while ago clover is a great one so even if you do have a monoculture lawn which is a lawn that maybe just has like one plant if you leave clover crop up a little bit they, they're great as well so that that's kind of what I would say really bringing it all back to the start you're adapting to climate change because if you're putting in plants a diversity of plants and you're reducing fertilizer these plants are going to be a bit more hardy um, in your garden and they can adapt to climate change which is better for you as well because gardens have been shown to help keep your house cool in the summer and also keep it warmer and reduce your energy use in the winter so that's another thing to take into consideration I think what I would say on that 
for what people can do. I don't think it matters, first of all, whether it's a small thing you can do or a big thing. Um, the size, the scale of what you can do, do what you can, right? But that might mean, like, let's be open, that people could do something very big as well, very significant. You don't necessarily have to say, we'll only do small things. I'm constantly saying this to people, actually, that um, we're a little bit defeatist in how we speak about tackling things, that we say, oh, look, one small change. And I, I know it's encouraging. It's helping the people look, you do a little bit at a time, you'll achieve something. But we shouldn't be afraid to say what big things can we do too you know because if we never go into that space it's actually um it's as if we're not able to do big things we are so humans if you think of it in the first instance we're the people that have created all of this mess largely speaking that's the scientific argument anyway that it's this is humans have done all this like so if if i had um many years ago said to you know the humans that live on the planet lads i want you to create this scenario where the whole planet starts going into a climate meltdown like and i'll come back to you and see how you got on it'd be like humans have been phenomenal at doing that that was what we were we were tasked to do in this world like we've been brilliant so we can do things on a large scale doesn't have to be bad so i would just say that to everyone like do the small things they do make a difference it's great to do that but don't forget you can do something big as well that's one thing i would say okay but the other thing i think what we're trying to do here with wild work and what a lot of people are trying to do is we're trying to bring people back in touch with the land and where we come from humans as a species we are part of nature we're the same as the wolves and the bears and the cuckoos and the frogs and whoever else we lost touch with that it's as if we are different from all the other life on the planet but if you go back in time in places like ireland and trace back the ancestry of the people who lived here we lived in more close harmony with nature so with wildbrook that's what we're trying to bring back we're asking people to go back to tuning back into nature and live more in harmony with it however that might be it mightn't have to mean that you go and live in a cave or something even with things like going back when Rachel was speaking about the meadow that she wants to conserve that's about doing what you can to conserve this old long established system that's very important but as humans we can also start doing things now that will bring about these systems going forward I think one of the problems we have in our country is that we do not value long established systems or we do not place a value on the creation of them either necessarily so if a farmer has a woodland that's you know 500 years old it's just class as a woodland really in terms of you know how we may get payment for it or whatever else you need to really place a value on these the same would have been in a community setting where there's a 200 year old wood woodland like in the community setting and and it's it's a wonderful woodland but because it's not like you know a 500 year old wood it's like not seen as as important as that but we, we need to place value on these things because we need them for a whole range of purposes, but we, we need them for climate change especially. So long-established natural ecosystems are really important for adapting to what climate change bring along. You know, we mentioned earlier how wetland systems can help mitigate against flood risk and so on. So people need to get into our heads that we need a healthy, functioning ecosystem, whether that means conserving the stuff we already have or creating new stuff. So listeners of this podcast like you mightn't be in a position to get out a shovel or something like that to do the physical work or you mightn't be able to invest in something or who knows what you can and can't do but i would say do anything you can in ireland get people thinking that way of how important long-established ecosystems are wetlands woodlands grasslands get let's start making more of them and keeping the ones we have because it's really important and i don't think people are tuned in to the difference between something like a woodland that was planted this year and one that's a 500 years old do what you can in that way please (laughs) that was a great way to explain everything we've talked about here i think actually summarized it really nicely
So I think we've covered everything from climate change, biodiversity, and, and the works. We've discussed a lot, and I hope not only did our listeners learn a lot, but took something out of it that can inspire them to make their own changes in the world. So thank you for joining me, William. You're very welcome, Kinga. It's a pleasure. Thanks for hosting the podcast. Thanks for giving me the chance to, and thanks, Rachel. Thank you so much for hosting it. You came in with some really good, tough questions. Um, and I think it really, it opened it up for a lot of interesting conversation and maybe a lot of thinking points afterwards that we can all reflect on. Thank you, guys. I, I know I learned a lot and definitely some great points were brought up. And to our listeners, we, we hope you enjoyed. And this brings to an end this Workplacement Podcast. Our next episode will be just us reflecting on what we've done and what we've learned. So tune in for that. Thanks for listening. Bye.